Have you ever seen the movie Sliding Doors? Now it's not a movie about Def Leppard, or maybe, just maybe in some way it is. It's a movie that's got two storylines running parallel to each other, two alternative versions of one woman's life. And in the first, she just manages to squeeze through the sliding doors of a London tube train just as it's about to leave. But in the other story, the sliding doors close in front of her and she misses the same train. And from these points onwards, her life develops down two very different paths. And since this film was released, in the UK at least, you'll hear people refer sometimes to a sliding door moment. It's a moment that's not always obviously important at the time, but can dramatically alter the direction of people's lives. Now the Def Leppard story is full of sliding doors moments, but arguably the slidiest, the most doorious moment of them all is related to the song Pour Some Sugar On Me. And the first sliding doors moment for Pour Some Sugar On Me actually occurs six years before it's even released on the 1st of August 1981. Rock and roll. This is it. Welcome to MTV Music Television, the world's first 24-hour stereo video music channel. The best of TV combined with the best of radio. Now, starting right now, you'll never look at music the same way again. You'll never look at music the same way again. It's an interesting concept, isn't it? Looking at music. The idea that what we see in music is almost on a par with what we hear. And when MTV was launched, this is exactly what they were saying. The first music video ever played on MTV was Video Killed the Radio Star by Buggles. And this song says that if the visual isn't up to scratch, then it might actually kill the audio. But not only did video not kill Def Leppard, it breathed life and momentum into them on three occasions, and none more so than with the song Pour Some Sugar On Me. So in this, episode two of the officially unofficial Def Leppard podcast, Def Lep Pod, we're going to take a look at Pour Some Sugar On Me, and we're going to explore exactly how it mirrors the importance of the visual, of appearance, and of presentation to Def Leppard over the years. And you know exactly how I'm going to invite you into this story. Step inside, walk this way, you and me, babe. Hey, hey! Ah, oh, there it is. Pour some sugar on me. What a song. It's the signature Def Leppard tune from the signature Def Leppard album, Hysteria. It's the song that's held close to the heart of die-hard Leopard fans and it stood the test of time. But it's also the song that the wider public, if they know any Def Leppard song, it's the one that they're most likely to know. It's a public service of a song there to lift the spirits of the globe. It's the absolute perfect crossover rock song. So we're going to begin with some facts and figures for you related to Pour Some Sugar On Me. 
Okay, so some chart positions. It was released in the UK on the 8th of September 1987, and it reaches number 18, which is reasonable. It's released in the US on the 16th of April in 1988, where eventually it reaches number 2 in the Billboard Hot 100 by July 1988. In the Netherlands, it reaches 94. 94? WTF, Netherlands. This is rock music blasphemy. Considering Leopard spent the best part of three years in the Whistlelord Studios, which is just outside Amsterdam in the Netherlands, they probably paid enough in studio fees to power its economy for a year, so you would have thought the Dutch might have been a little bit more Leopard-friendly. Nonetheless, we forgive you Netherlands. We all make mistakes. And I'll tell you another mistake. It happened in 2006. VH1 did a vote for the best songs of the 80s. Pour Some Sugar On Me came in number two. Number two. I don't know what was number one because I don't look up and research incorrect facts. Now, the quality of a song can't be judged on sales and chart positions alone. Music is all about soul, not just the dollars. But the story of Sugar is absolutely synonymous with its impact on Frost and Def Leppard and the album Hysteria into the stratosphere. And it's a well-known story, but it's one worth repeating. A year after its release, sales of Hysteria have stalled at around 3 million copies, and the band needed to sell 5 million just to break even. Now the last throw of the dice is Pour Some Sugar On Me. It's the fourth single off the album in the US, and it works, and we'll get to how and why it works later. But for anyone who's seen the Hysteria classic albums, you might recall a bit where David Leach, who's the head of promotion of Phonogram and Mercury Records at the time, says how he's never sold more albums off the back of one single in his career. Hysteria sells 4 million copies during the run of Pour Some Sugar On Me due to its impact. In one single day, Hysteria sells 450,000 copies, which is going nearly gold in one day. And for about a year, Def Leppard go on to arguably be the biggest band in the world. However, for now, let's get back to those sliding doors moments. There are four Pour Some Sugar On Me sliding doors stories. We're going to cover three of them quickly, and then we're going to go into the fourth in a little bit more detail. Uno, the album Hysteria is finished. Robert John Mutlang, a man who is far, far too greedy for names, and Joe Elliott are in the studio, and they're finishing off the vocals for Armageddon. Now, during a break, Joe Elliott's playing the chorus to a new song that he's come up with, and it just happens to be Pour Some Sugar On Me. Mutt overhears it, absolutely loves it, and because he thinks that the album's actually missing a song and needs one more, he's really, really keen that they record this song also. But Joe and Mutt know that the band aren't going to be happy. Now luckily, they play the song to the band, and they love it, and then Pour Some Sugar On Me is actually recorded in 10 days. So the sliding doors moment, if Joe isn't toying around with this song at this time, if Mutt doesn't overhear it, then there's no sugar on Hysteria, and Hysteria sells only 3 or 4 million albums, rather than the 25 million. This moment makes a massive difference to the path that will be followed by Def Leppard over the following decades. DOS. So the lyrics are written by Joe and Mutt, making phonetic sounds into dictaphones to a backing track of the song and are stood at different ends of the studio. They then swap dictaphones and then they interpret the sounds that they hear and come up with the lyrics. 
Now, what Joe hears when he listens to Mutt's dictaphone is love is like a bomb. And it sets the tone for the rest of the lyrics, sex metaphors, and essentially a very sexy song. Now, I'm going to throw in a disclaimer here. This isn't the most remarkable sliding doors moment in the world. It probably doesn't massively change the path of Def Leppard in the future. However, if rather than hearing love is like a bomb, Joe hears something like, "Mm, I don't know, I've left the oven on, then maybe a song about kitchen compliances doesn't have quite the same sex appeal as pour some sugar on me. Trez. Strippers, oh, strippers in Florida love pour some sugar on me. And they love it because it's conducive to sexy dancing in front of sleazy men. And as a consequence, US radio is bombarded with requests for this song from the strippers themselves and their clients. And as Phil Collins says, this effect essentially spreads like a forest fire across the states and begins the gradual climb up the charts, which then impacts on the increase in sales and the impact on hysteria, which then begins. Now, dear Def Leppard friends, I must admit, I've not done any more research on the stripper aspect of this story, because I'm a little bit concerned that Mrs. Def Leppard might check my internet history, and when she sees flooded the strippers, I might be in trouble. And Quattro. So, I've whipped through those three first sugar stories really, really quickly. And a lot of them will be quite well known to you, I would imagine. And you may well know the fourth story too as well. But there's a lot more mileage in this fourth story. So that's the one that we're going to crack on with. Right, there are two videos for Pour Some Sugar On Me. One is very bad and one is very good. I'm going to let the band explain a little bit more. She done two for Pour Some Sugar On Me. Yes. The first yeah. one we did uh, with the construction, in, uh, we, we didn't think it represented, it didn't look international or cool enough. It didn't represent what the second one did, which was filming us live in Denver, sold out show in the round, which was amazing. That kind of looked like we sounded. The first video didn't really look like it. So you got two extremes right there. That was fun. But you know, again, you know, everyone would have a different no, I don't know. favorite. I think you might be right. Yeah? I, think I would the, agree with you, Phil. The, I think, yeah. I think the we're... The Demolition Woman... It was taken a little too literally. It was just rubbish. (laughs) But at the same time, we tried to mask it by calling it the UK version. So like special. (laughs) So we'd spent 100 grand on it. We're going to put the fucking thing out there. (laughs) No, they they actually started tearing the place apart while we were playing. And uh, at one one point, there was a piece of furniture. You can actually see it in the video. And I, I thought my days were over at that point. It was it was yeah, really it was really close. <laughs> See, the UK video for Sugar was so bad that it nearly killed the drummer Rick Allen. And if it's not clear from the clip that you just heard, the video consists of the band in a lounge of a residential house performing a song while it's demolished and it crumbles around them. And Phil's right, it's a very, very uncool video. But what is interesting about the video, it was actually directed by prolific and successful director, Robert Mulcahy. So he actually directed the film Highlander, if anyone's seen that, it's a really good film. And a host of other music videos in the 1980s for some of the biggest artists at the time, such as Elton John, Queen, Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet, just to name a few. And when you look at a lot of his videos, they're often quite quirky. And it was actually him who directed the very first video played on MTV that we referred to earlier, Video Killed the Radio Star. And if you check out that video and things like I'm Still Standing by Elton John or It's a Kind of Magic by Queen, you'll see what I mean. They all have a quirky element to them. 
But broadly, funny videos don't really work if the song isn't explicitly funny. There are some exceptions to this, so for example, someone like the Beastie Boys, they managed to pull it off with videos like Sabotage, which is a brilliant pastiche of 70s cop shows. Elton John can get away with it too, just simply because he's Elton John. But I suppose the most damning aspect of the UK video for Pour Some Sugar On Me is it looks the same, but isn't as good as their video for Me And My Wine. But the difference is, is that Me And My Wine was a B-side, and it's a song about getting drunk. I mean, I'll be honest with you, I'm not even entirely sure why a video exists for Me And My Wine, but it does, and it's a really good video. And the reason that Me And My Wine works is because they're clearly going all out to be daft, and the setting is the same as Pour Some Sugar On Me. It's in a residential house, but they're obviously having a laugh, Rick Allen is playing the drums on the toilet. Phil Collin is playing the guitar in a bath behind a shower curtain, wearing goggles or some sort of strange sunglasses. Joe's using a vacuum cleaner as a microphone. And there's a one point where Steve Clark falls over and it's very, very clearly not planned. But it works in me and my wine because the band are providing the funny. While in Pour Some Sugar On Me, the funny is happening all around them. So with the UK video for Pour Some Sugar On Me, there's zero impact, it doesn't add to the audio in any way, and if anything, it's arguably detrimental. The US version on the other hand though, is absolutely brilliant. Indeed, in May 1991, about three years after its release, it was actually voted number one in the best 300 videos of all time on MTV. And as Phil says, it's live in concert, in the round, interspersed with black and white behind the scenes footage and it's also a different mix of the song with a substantially different introduction used this one It's this introduction which marries perfectly with the images of the band hidden behind the screen surrounding the stage. And as this introduction ends and the song kicks in, the curtains fall and the audio and the visual are in perfect synchronicity and the excitement of the song and the live experience are absolutely tangible. The video is directed by Wayne Isham, who directed the whole feature-length concert in The Round In Your Face, which was the concert for the Hysteria Tour. Now, although in the round in your face is a video or a DVD, and it's not a record, in my humble opinion, it's one of Def Leppard's greatest releases, and we'll definitely cover it in more detail at a later date. Wayne Isham is also a prolific director of music videos. He's directed videos for Kiss and Metallica and a few fighters. His strength, though, is definitely capturing the energy of live performances. If you check out the video for Lay Your Hands On Me by Bon Jovi from a year later, it's another great use of live footage. And of course, part of the appeal of this particular video is that it's filmed in the round, which was unique for rock bands at the time. The stage is in the centre of the arena, with the crowd all around them. And the stage design is great. It mirrors the neon, almost circuit board-like and futuristic design of the Hysteria album cover. It just looks fantastic. And the whole visual aesthetic of the Hysteria album is just perfect and is part of the greatness of this album. 
That album cover was designed by Andy Airfix, who sadly died in 2018. And for a while, when the working title for Hysteria was actually Animal Instinct, the album sleeve was different too, and it featured an eagle, a lion, and a shark. I will never know, but if the album name hadn't changed from Animal Instinct to Hysteria, as recommended by Rick Allen, and the album design hadn't changed, then the unique stage design of this video changes too, and this video doesn't look quite the same, and the video which propels Sugar and subsequently Hysteria into space might not happen in quite the same way. The importance of the visual is completely intertwined with the audio here and the success that follows. Similar to the impact of the music video on Pour Some Sugar On Me, and a subsequent rise of the album Hysteria, and a subsequent rise of the band Daft Leppard, was the release of Photograph five years earlier. But the difference with Photograph was rather than having to invigorate the album that it was from, Pyromania, it was actually the opening single, and if you excuse the pun, it lit the fuse for the Pyromania album to take off from the very outset. And again, it was backed by a video that stood out from the crowd. I, I think the photograph video is a brilliant video because of the way that Dave Mallet overbled the colours. It just, you know, I mean, MTV was... They had like five videos at the time and they were all bands just playing in warehouses and stuff. It was pretty horrible and we'd made this really good video. Now, it wasn't just Def Leppard's video at this time that acted as a catalyst for their success. In the early 80s, there was a movement and it was called the British Invasion, but it was the second wave of the British Invasion, the first wave being in the 60s with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Who. And this second wave exploded onto the scene in America in the 1980s or the early 1980s, primarily off the back of airplay on MTV. And the advantage that they all had over their US counterparts was that they were ahead in terms of embracing the music video as a form. Having started developing a decade earlier, the music videos of British bands were almost like short films in comparison to those in the US, and the British were able to exploit the image and the visual to help propel their music. Now many of these bands were electronic music such as Human League and Soft Cell and Flock of Seagulls, and you had flamboyant bands too like Duran Duran, and Boy George's Culture Club, who very much drew the eyes and were made for video. But amongst all this pop, there was a rock act, and that rock act is Def Leppard. And as a rather grouchy Joe Elliott explains in this interview that you're about to hear from 1983, they were secretly the most successful of all of the British bands, and by some distance. And in spite of the marvellous sales of the album, which must be around six million in the United States now? Yeah. Heavy groups still don't get the press that somebody with a face or image like Boy George gets. Isn't that the case? Yeah, it definitely is. There's an article in a, in a, a weekly that's just come out now about Britain Rocks America again. It doesn't even mention us at all. Yeah, all the bands mentioned, you combine their sales together, doesn't total hours. You know, but I mean... No, regardless of that, you know, it doesn't it should have got a mention. I mean, uh, there's two ways of looking at it. You can think, well, fair enough. You know, who cares anyway? We sold that and we know we've sold that. But at the same time, it would be nice if people actually, these supposed journalists that do this, you know, fact-finding bit, actually decided to think about somebody that doesn't dress up like a woman, you know, actually can make good music and sell records. Okay, so if I could have a second dad, I would choose Joe Elliott. 
However, I am going to have to pull Joe up here on his derogatory dressing like a woman comments. Because what's quite amusing as he says this on a boat in Sydney Harbour, and by the way, that's what all of that background noise is. Well, as he says this, he sat next to Phil Collin, who only 18 months earlier had been in a band called Girl, where he very much dressed up like a woman. And the band he was in before that was called Dumb Blondes, where he very much dressed up like a woman. But all this aside, Def Leppard are around here at a cultural moment in time where there is a renaissance of music in the form of the music video and they're able to capitalise. However, there's a time even before Pour Some Sugar On Me in 1988 and Photograph in 1983 in which the visual assists Def Leppard. There's the video for Bringing On The Heartbreak in 1981, which is the very first step that puts them in this position in the first place to capitalise through the rest of the 80s by using the music video. Now, the story about Bringing On The Heartbreak video is a little bit different. Sugar was a perfect marriage of sound and visual. Photograph was about being ahead of the game and taking advantage of a cultural moment. Bringing On The Heartbreak is about how the visual can be deceptive. Like Photograph, here, Leopard benefited from a fledgling MTV's ridiculously small library of music to actually play in the months just after its birth. Consequently, the video for Heartbreak was played in heavy, heavy rotation, and the album High and Dry, which at that point had actually run its course and stopped selling, began to pick up in sales, selling 5,000 copies every week, a little bit like what Hysteria did years later, but on a much smaller scale. But this and the heavy rotation of bringing on the heartbreak, it kept Def Leppard in the consciousness of the American public, who were then primed a couple of years later to embrace the band when Photograph dropped in 1983, as did the Pyromania album. But where's this visual deception? The video is a live performance and it's actually recorded at the Royal Court Theatre in Liverpool and it was recorded in August 1981. And fan club members of the band were brought in to put in the crowd to give it the right live aesthetic. But the reality was that at this time, Def Leppard was on a dismal tour of the UK, playing to theatres that were less than half full. They played well, but the scant audience even featured in the reviews. One reviewer at the time referred to the one-third capacity that bothered to turn up. And the tour in the UK had actually taken place partly to prove that the band had not sold out to the USA as they'd been accused of. But as the saying goes, a lie can go halfway around the world while a truth is still putting its shoes on. And the majority of the UK audience had given up on Def Leppard and did not show up on this tour. And the band, which had apparently sold out, was doing anything but in the UK. And the irony was that what looked like an energetic and packed gig for the video of Heartbreak was in fact filmed in the middle of their least successful UK tour ever, and this lack of success was due to a perceived favouritism of the US market. And in the end, it was this video, from this time, filmed in the UK, that was actually the very thing which set them up for massive success in the US going forward. But worry not, the UK, like everyone does on Def Leppard, saw sense in the end, and we do have a happy ending. Right then, let's bring this episode to a close by going back to the start and that first video played on MTV in 1981, Video Killed the Radio Star. It was written by Trevor Horn, who also sings and plays bass on that song. 
Now, Trevor Horn would actually go on to become a revered producer, winning Brit Awards in 1983, 1985 and 1992. He also won an Ivan Novello Award for Outstanding Contribution to British Music. And such was his influence on British pop music in the 1980s, he's actually been referenced as the man who invented the 1980s. Now, he's never produced Def Leppard, but a trawl of interviews over the years, and you will often hear or you'll read Joe Elliott talk about how Def Leppard were inspired by the sonic and audio advances made in 80s pop music and electronic music. And they were eager and keen to transpose this modern and futuristic sonic production into rock. No one else was doing this. And Trevor Horn was at the forefront of this 80s pop sound. And again, over the years, you'll hear Joe Elliott reference a band like Frankie Goes to Hollywood, who were a solid band, but when Trevor Horn got hold of them and produced them, then he created sonically advanced pop records and he made them into stars. And Def Leppard, they were blown away by the sound, and it was a sound that they wanted themselves for hysteria. It's a sound that you can very much hear on Pour Some Sugar On Me. The sounds are massive, fat and full, and the song is full of space, but it's space which lets it breathe and makes the song even more bombastic. It's two-dimensional music exploded into 3D. It's the Star Wars of music. It's popcorn for the ears. The launch of MTV in August 1981 was the first of many sliding doors moments that would both create and propel the visual elements of Pour Some Sugar On Me and Def Leppard. But maybe, just maybe, as we watched Trevor Horn sing Video Kill the Radio Star, the way in which Pour Some Sugar On Me would sound some six years later, the ultimate perfect pop metal crossover, well maybe that was staring out at us from the TV screen back in 1981. 